children today, they can be dismissed at this time for our Heise Hill Kids program heading downstairs. Got a great team of workers that work with our kids each week. And uh, head down there. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. There's some notes in the uh, bulletin to follow along with today. And uh, then we're going to be looking particularly, there's all kinds of scriptures today that are on your handout. Uh, but the fuller one that we want to look at today is in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 4 to 12, 1 Peter is over near the back uh, or the right side of your Bible. Just keep turning there. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. Just go back a little bit and you'll get to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we're in a series called What on Earth Am I Here For? And uh, we're looking at uh, that, uh, the idea that God has us here on this planet for a reason. He created us uh, to be in relationship with him and uh, to serve him. And we've got things to do. There's a purpose for us. Uh, to exist. And all kinds of people these days are wondering if they have any purpose. And you're hearing a lot of conversation about this whole idea of quest for meaning. This past week, we looked at within uh, what Rick Warren says in his book, What on Earth Am I Here For? We looked at, we're beginning to look at five purposes, specific purposes, within our greatest purpose, a greater purpose, which is to enjoy God and glorify Him uh, forever. And we looked at worshiping God this week. And we looked at the whole idea that. Um, uh, we're supposed to bring God pleasure with our lives. And uh, if you've been following the book, you're reading about that. And we found out that we can worship God not just Sunday morning through singing, but we can worship God in all kinds of ways. And specifically, we can worship God by um, what we do with our lives each and every day. There's been all kinds of people throughout history that have discovered that. There was a book uh, called Practicing the Presence of God that you can still purchase. It's a very ancient book. It was written by a monk who lived in the Middle Ages named Brother Lawrence, who worked in the monastery, and he worked in the kitchen of the monastery, and he believed you could chop vegetables and cook for the glory of God, and he wrote about experiencing God's presence as he worked there in the kitchen of the monastery. A Christian architect of the Middle Ages who was a designer of many of the great cathedrals of Europe, his name was Christopher Wren, was one day walking around the job site and uh, talking to some of the tradespeople that were working on building the cathedral uh, that they were building at the time. And uh, Christopher Wren uh, talked to one of the people that was one of the stonemasons there and asked them what he was doing. Now, you would have thought that the, the stonemason would have said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working with this stone, I'm crafting this stone, but he didn't. He said, I'm building a great cathedral unto God. He believed that his work was a form of worship uh, to God. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, which won an Academy Award several years ago. It's a story about uh, Eric Little, a, a Christian uh, athlete who went on to become a missionary in China. Uh, and uh, he uh, quotes, the, one of the famous quotes that come out of that movie was, uh, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. So when I'm in the Olympics, when I'm running the race, I sense and feel uh, God's pleasure. You were made to live your life for God's glory. That's your first purpose. This week, we're going to move on uh, to the second purpose that uh, we have, and uh, we're going to talk about being formed for God's family. You and I were made to be in relationship with other people. Um, there's a, a concept uh, that has come out of sociology called rugged individualism. And for a long time in our culture, it kind of predominated. It fits very well with capitalism, with this idea that you can be self-made, self-determining. Uh, you can pull yourself up with by the bootstraps, theoretically, and uh, you don't need anybody else. You really are just fine on your own. It, uh, well, it came to its height um, in some of the, the music that came out in the era that it was birthed. 
uh, through songs like Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way, which you still hear occasionally. Um, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. You know, record shows, I took the blows, but I did it my way. And so I'm an individualist, I know what to do. The country music singer, Charlie Pride, had a song called Me and Jesus Got Our Own Thing Going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. It's just me and Jesus, we're just fine. That is rugged individualism at its best. It used to be before people figured out, finally figured out that cigarette smoking was actually not good for you. There was a time there where people would, you know, they would put doctors on posters and say, you know, like these number of doctors are recommending Marlboro cigarettes. And you would have what was known as the Marlboro Man, who was the ultimate height of, um, of rugged individualism. This guy riding a horse through Central Park in New York City, smoking a Marlboro cigarette with a doctor quote underneath about, you know, how good it was for you to smoke Marlboro cigarettes. And if you would you know, smoke a Marlboro cigarette, you could be this, you know, good-looking, rugged, individual man that was just, like, self-made, and you could ride a horse through the park in New York City. Um, like, you really wanted to do that. You know, there was some... Uh, but that's individualism. The problem is, people began to see the flaws with rugged individualism, that it really uh, didn't work, and it didn't make any sense, because people knew inwardly, I think intuitively, um, that... Um, Loneliness is probably the greatest enemy to the human soul. Um, that we really need uh, relationships. Um, stories would begin to come out of people that thought they were rugged individualists, but they would be caught in car accidents or in burning buildings and couldn't get out, and so somebody had to rescue them. And it didn't pay to be a rugged individualist because you couldn't help yourself any longer. You actually needed other people. You found out the hard way that you needed other people uh, in your life. Then all these studies began to emerge about what would happen if we didn't uh, have other people in our life and what the toll of loneliness and be, an isolationism would actually uh, do to people. That's really what we're going to be talking about uh, this week, particularly in the context of the church. God said it a long time ago when uh, he created uh, man and woman in the Garden of Eden. He created woman to be with the man because he said it wasn't good for the man uh, to be alone. And so he created the potential for relationships, because it was not good for us to be alone. Up until that point in time in the creation story, everything was good. And then all of a sudden, God sees something that's not good. It's not good for us uh, to be alone. And so, how do we work away at that? How do we understand that? Uh, how do we get the, into, our, into our psyche and into our personality this idea that we weren't meant uh, to live life alone? Well, it's got a lot to do with a, a biblical word, uh, called koinonia that I want to explain for you today that really uh, flows out of a whole bunch of teaching in Scripture, but I think it's really well embodied in this passage of Scripture we want to look at today in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through to 12. Now, there's some peripheral stuff about building in here that I'll explain to you in a minute, uh, but you'll get the nuance of what I'm trying to say here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 uh, through to 12. Listen as I read this for you. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. 
They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And then this verse, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's this passage talking about? Well, it's using uh, an illustration from building, and it's simply trying to say, first of all, that Jesus is the cornerstone, and the church, the people of God, are really being formed uh, to become a spiritual house or a building. And so we're not a physical house. We uh, meet in a meeting house, in a a place where we gather together, the church facility. And uh, as we've talked about lots of times before, we need to understand that the church is not the building, it is the people, even though we sometimes use the term interchangeably. What this passage is trying to say to us is that uh, we are together, uh, we're the living stones, we're the things that the buildings are, are being built of, and in that day it was like large pieces of stone to erect these buildings, and every building tends to have a, a cornerstone. In days gone by, uh, the cornerstone wasn't just a figurative thing, it was the, the first stone you put in place to make sure the whole building would become square or plumb, I believe the term is, isn't it, Dale? Square, somewhere, you know, everything lines up so your doors aren't crooked, you know, you've got two inches at one end of the door and nothing at the other. That's so the the building's not square. In old houses, they sink and they're not square anymore. That's, uh, the cornerstone was supposed to be the first stone that you laid in place. And so what uh, Peter is saying here is Jesus is the cornerstone, and he's a living stone. This is a spiritual house. It's, in the living, it's a living house that we're being built into, and Jesus is the, is the cornerstone. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and he says, now lots of people don't accept Jesus as the cornerstone. In fact, they stumble over him. They don't believe he was the Messiah. They don't believe he was God's appointed one, and so uh, people struggle with Jesus, and that will continue. And so you people that are in the spiritual house, you need to understand you that you believe that Jesus is your cornerstone, that everything in your life together flows out of Jesus, but not everybody uh, shares that. Just understand that. And understand that your life together is going to speak volumes to people who don't believe. You are being built together into a spiritual house. And he uses all kinds of pictures, word pictures, to describe what that spiritual house is all about. First of all, he says, you are a chosen people, in verse 9. You have a special place and purpose in God's heart. Once again, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and Jewish people believe that they were the chosen people. And what Peter is actually saying is that that inclusiveness of God has been extended to the church, the people of God, even to Gentiles. People that were once outside the family of God are now brought in. They are, you are a chosen people. Chosen has a special significance because it means that God um, went looking for you and brought you into his family. I have a friend, John, uh, who was uh, adopted. And uh, he knew very on early in life that, that he was adopted by his parents. And he tells about that whole journey of understanding Um, coming to faith in Jesus and understanding that God was adopting him into his family the same way that his parents adopted him into his family and took him from a life that would have been potentially very broken to a life where he had a a solid home and a solid upbringing. In many ways, you and I are adopted. And he goes on to say, you're a royal priesthood. Um, In Jewish times, there was only a few priests, but he's saying to these people, you're all priests, you're all equal, 
You all have access to God. You don't have to just leave it to the priest, but you all have access to God. So you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. And then he says you're a holy nation, a holy nation. Now, these, ter- these days, we t- hear this term nation all the time. Apparently, you and I are part of Leaf Nation. Okay? That's what the Toronto Maple Leafs say. Everybody in the GTA in this, in this area around here, uh, this is, uh, you know, this is Leaf, Toronto Maple Leaf land, and we are part of Leaf Nation. Now, not all of you, I guess, are part of Leaf Nation. I know some of you are part of Habs Nation and other nations within this apparent nation. And all these things are saying that we're part of these nations. They can be part of, like, every rock group has a nation, it seems, like the, the followers, the people that follow them. Um, we're a Jesus nation. We are. We're a holy nation. We live in Canada, but we're part of the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, then, we're a people that belong to God. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's your identity. That's who you are. And you are, then, living stones. You are the concrete pieces, the slabs that are being built together, the blocks that are being put together to become uh, the spiritual house. And so every piece, every part is important. We all are building the church together. Do you remember, if some of you are Sunday school veterans, um, that you used to make a little thing with your hands? I can't do it very well. Does anybody remember how that goes? Somebody want to come up and demonstrate? Anybody remember this? That's right. Here's the church. Here is the steeple. Open the door. Oh, that, oh, sorry. We're supposed to go like this. Yeah, Kathy can do it. That's right. Are they? Get somebody to show you this afterward. The point is, see, I still remember that. There it is again. You see, we're the people. We're the ones that are building the church. And so if the building burns down, it's a loss. But we haven't lost the church. We lost the church building, the place where the church meets. That's what we're going to be learning about uh, this week. Now, how do we work at being the people of God, at building the church, being these living stones uh, together? Well, it's got a lot to do with this word that I put on the cover of the bulletin. It's a Greek word, and I put it in the Greek for you there. And it simply means um, fellowship. It's, it's um, the word koinonia. It's often translated as uh, just plain old uh, fellowship. The problem with the word, the translation that we've used as fellowship is it's kind of got watered down. And so um, the word fellowship gets used a lot, and I hear it in contexts like this. Are you going to stay after for fellowship? Okay? Which generally means stay after for refreshments. Um, Where do you fellowship? People ask each other. Well, it, it generally means where... Uh, do you attend? Um, something else is going on right now. You people just fellowship together, which means you chit-chat uh, together. All of these things are fellowship. They are. The problem is we've kind of watered down this concept of fellowship to kind of being Christianity light, uh, where this word really didn't mean that. It meant that, but it meant so much 
more. This word really could be better translated as uh, community. Community, that's the word that we tend to use these uh, days more. It means doing life together or experiencing life uh, together. It includes unselfish loving, honest sharing, practical serving, sacrificial giving, sympathetic uh, conversations, comforting, caring, knowing and being known. It's this heart-to-heart connection we're supposed to have with each other. It's being self-revealing, admitting weakness, praying for each other, being there in good times and in difficult times. It's a bond of commitment to doing life together. It goes beyond just simple fellowship, where we just, you know, talk about everyday things. And I am the best guy in the world to talk about everyday things. I can talk to you about, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs and everything else until you're blue in the face. I love doing that kind of stuff. Small talk, I'm, I'm an expert at that. Love that stuff. But if you just stay at the small talk level, that's where you stay. And sometimes I think, you know, like we've kind of defined fellowship as like this conversation that two people had on the, the porch of the church. New truck, Hans, used. <laughs> New truck, used. And that's, that's kind of the conversation, you know, like we just talk about stuff, but we never get any deeper than that. And it's good to talk about stuff. You have to make small talk before you can make big talk. You really do. But... Fellowship in Koinonia is a lot more than that. So the scriptures kind of paint pictures of uh, four other things that it at least can be. And here's what they are. Let me give them to you today. First uh, is this idea of belonging. It's belonging uh, together to each other. Um, Ephesians 2.19 says, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Romans 12.5, In Christ, we who are many form one body, each member belongs to all the others, and that body concept just goes on and on in Scripture. Those who, were accepted, uh, who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to their number uh, that day. There's this idea that if you want to be in the church, that you change your vocabulary to the language of belonging. I always knew, and I always do know, that people consider your church to be home, and that's the concept I like to use, when they start referring to your church as my church, rather than that church down the road. You know, when you say, when people say, uh, what church, you know, is, is uh, that are you a part of? Well, you know, and they use that language. Well, my church is up there on a hill, right in the middle of York region. It's Heise Hill Church. But when they talk about that church down there, or your church pastor, the church that you pastor, then they're using the language of somebody else. Belonging means that um, we actually are connected to each other. And we have a formal process for that. And I think it's good uh, for churches uh, to have that, uh, have this process of membership. But uh, really what's behind this concept of membership, this formal uh, concept of membership, is this idea that, that I call you my brother and my sister and I want to be in a, in a relationship with you. And I want uh, to belong there. And I want to commit to being there. We live in the maybe generation. On Facebook, one of the categories that uh, you can check if you're going to the event is maybe. Are you going to this event? Yes, for sure. No, I'm not going to the event. And then the one that most people tend to check, maybe. I might go if something else comes up. You know, it sounds pretty appealing to me. I might like to go to that if I'm not busy that night. 
And so we kind of have this maybe approach uh, to doing church. I'll come if the conditions are right. I'll be part of that group if the conditions are right. Just don't ask too much of me. But belonging kind of people feel like they are part of the conversation, that they are an important part of what's going on, that they want to participate and not just be a spectator. When you go to an event, a sporting event or whatever you go to, you are a spectator. You watch the other people that are uh, the performers on the field performing, and the rest of you just spectate. I, I do that all the time. In the church, we move from being, when we belong, we move from being spectators to participants. I have a friend, Tony, that I play golf with once a year. I do not belong to any golf club. I am not that good of a golfer. I do not belong to any golf club. There's lots of them you can belong to. But I am an occasional golfer. I freely admit it. I am committed to no golf club in York Region. Nobody has my name on their list. My friend, Tony, though, he belongs to this really nice golf club, and he takes me to play with him once a, once a year. He gets me onto the course, and I give him a little bit of money, and I can play with that. And I can tell in the conversation that Tony feels differently about his golf experience that I do about mine because he belongs to the Westmount Country Club and he loves being part of that country club and he uses words of ownership this is my golf course and we have you know we work together and we make plans about how we're going to redesign the sixth hole he told me and we all voted you know about you know the sixth hole and what whether it be water on the fairway we decided you know that together we had meetings about that he used the language of belonging because he belongs to that golf club. He put up a lot of money to join that thing. I don't care enough about golf to join a club. I really don't. I just want to play now and then. I'm not committed to any golf course. And I think a lot of people view church that way. I'll you know, just plug in there occasionally if I feel like it. But I really don't want to belong. The picture the Bible uses of community, of being a living stone, is one of belonging. The second picture is that of, uh, of friendship. It says in Acts 2, uh, 44, all the believers were together and every day they continued uh, to meet together. And then Hebrews 10, 25 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage each other. No program, no church can um, manufacture friends for you. All we can do is create conditions uh, for it to occur. But the way to start building friendship is to put yourself in the same place on a regular basis. A few basic ideas uh, apply to this. If um, you just don't share yourself ever with people, you'll never have any friends. If you're just invisible and keep to yourself and won't let yourself out at all, you'll uh, never have friends. You get out of friendship what you put in to friendship. I think we all know that. Friendship takes time and effort, and work, and effort. Uh, friendship is um, putting yourself in places where friendship uh, can occur. And so the church is supposed to be this group of people that actually are working toward liking being together. Um, it's not this have-to experience, it's this get-to. And when the church is working right, it's this group of people that just are thinking that this place is my lifeline. I can't survive in this world if I don't have people that I do life with. The third picture is that of partnership. Partnership. Uh, partnership means to work together or to enter into a relationship of productivity uh, together. When you go into business with a partner, 
uh, you agree to do put, both put your assets into the business and to work together into a partnership in producing a product or a service, distributing a service, hopefully to make money. Uh, the Apostle Paul thought of brothers and sisters in the church as their, his partners. He says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, he thought that the people that were supporting him oftentimes financially were his partners. They were actually working alongside with him. Uh, and then he said in Ephesians 4.16, From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And so um, this picture is this idea that we really are working together, and I don't know any way to develop um, being a living stone better than working together with other people in the church, where you actually serve together and you're part of a team of people that are doing something, when you work on a project together, when you come together to participate and do things together, that's a partnership. And so partners see themselves as having skin in the game. When they hear the offering appeal that we need this much money to be able to send this person out on a short-term missions thing, they think, I want to be part of that because I'm part of the team uh, there. They are participants. They love to work together. I used to have an associate, Pastor John Sider, who would come into my office. He was way older than I was, and I always felt really troubled about supervising him because he was just so experienced and just loved the Lord. And he would come into my office every day and say, Charlie, I just want to be accountable to you. Uh, you're, you know, you're my pastor. And I would say, John, it's okay. We just, it's okay. And he'd say, you know, it's just so good to work together. I just count every day a blessing that we just get to work together. I love that. And then the fourth picture is this idea that I think the Brethren in Christ Church has tried to capture historically. It's this idea of being brothers and sisters or family. Be devoted to one another, it says, in brotherly love. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love uh, one for another, this family kind of love. And so when you are in a family relationship with someone, your kin, your flesh of their flesh, bone of my bone, the Bible says, those people are your relatives. And you know and I know that you're stuck with your relatives. You don't get to pick your relatives, they're part of your family. And so in the church... You know, it's really an impossible dream when you think about the church. We come together from all these backgrounds and all these tastes and all these interests and all these experiences and all these preferences. And God says, I'm going to plunk all those people together down at Heise Hill Church together. And, and they're going to learn to love each other. And they're going to learn to get along with each other. And they're going to learn to set their preferences aside and decide what they're going to do together. And it can work. And people look at that outside the church and think, well, that's just an impossible pipe dream to try and put all those people together in one room, in one family, and have it work. You were raised in a family, and you know if you have siblings, that your brother or your sister is far different than you are. No two children are the same. If you have a parent, you know that. Your, parent, your brother, your sister is far different than, than you are. You have different likes. I'm as different from my two brothers as the day is long. We just got together last weekend for our Christmas, and I realized, again, we're just, we're just very different people. We have the same mom and dad. We were raised in the same house. We lived together for a whole number of years, but we're very different people. That's okay. That is okay. That's the way it is. But that presents some challenges when it comes to learning to live together and learning to get along. We have to keep working at it. So the Bible says we're brothers and sisters. Uh, you're stuck with me, and I'm stuck with you, and we're learning what that means. 
But when you're in family with each other, there is a glue. Somebody, you know, uh, challenges somebody in your family, your defenses go up immediately because that's my brother over there and that's my sister. That's what life in the church is really all about. That's what community is all about. So how do we work at that? Well, let me give you four ways you can do that in conclusion. And I want to tell you a story about a guy that learned a little bit about this. How do you practice koinonia? How do we practice community? Let me give you four simple handles. First of all, enter in. Enter in. You really do get, uh, what, get out of something what you put into it. And so imagine that I was giving you this assignment this week to think about. And this is good to talk about in small group. I want you to create a template for someone to be able to attend church service every week at Heise Hill Church but never connect with anybody else. I want you to write a script for how you could tell someone how to come to Heise Hill Church every week but never connect with anybody else. Never really connect with them. Just attend here. I wrote down a few thoughts of what that, uh, how you could go about doing that. Here's, here's 10 or 15. You might come up with a whole bunch more when you talk about this. Um, head for the parking lot like a shot right after the service is over. Like, pew, right out there. Don't stop. You know, when you go to uh, any kind of these trade shows or any kind of shows, that they'll, they'll tell you, do not make eye contact with the vendor because they want to give you a card or a freebie or something like that, engage you in conversation, get your email address. So you just walk down and just do not make eye contact. It's kind of the same way when you cut somebody off in public, you know, when you're driving your car. Do not make eye contact, okay? That's, that's a second way to really, you know, reduce connection. Uh, come late, leave early, that will work. Uh, never initiate a conversation, never. Always wait for somebody else to talk to you. Um, do not stay or attend any fellowship activity where there's food being served or anything like that because if they do that, then you'll have to talk to somebody, okay? Uh, refer to the church, uh, refer to this place as that church on the hill and never as my church, okay? Um, don't give anything. Um, if someone does approach you and initiate a conversation with you, give a one-word answer. Very simple answer that doesn't initiate or spark any further conversation. Um, don't reveal anything about yourself. Be very private. Certainly don't join a small group. Don't smile much. If you look grumpy, you'll scare people off. Um, so try to be as irritable as possible. Um, and if you do get into conversation with people and they manage to drag answers out of you, stick only to safe subjects. And if they get onto anything that sounds too deep to you, change the subject to the weather or something that you feel really good about. You know, if we don't enter into anything, if we just kind of keep people at arm's length all the time, um, you'll never have relationship. For years, I went to get my hair cut and I never would talk to the hairstylist or the barber as we used to call them. I just was too, believe it or not, I, I'm fairly shy in that way, so I just would never talk. So we moved back to Stouffville, and I decided this has to stop. And so I uh, went in to, to see Ben and Mario at Fame International on Main Street in Stouffville, and uh, I've developed a really good uh, relationship with Ben. Uh, found out that he used to cut hair at the Royal York Hotel, 
uh, that he's got a little guy at home that he's got a picture of sitting in front of me and we, he likes lots of things that I like. And we just spend the whole you know, 25 minutes that he's cutting my hair uh, talking and he knows me and I know him a little bit and he lives in Stouffville. And uh, I just determined that I was gonna talk to him, that I was going to enter in. Uh, if we just take a little bit of risk like that, I believe God um, will bless that if we enter in. So you can, you can do that. Take small steps with that. Um, secondly, this is a little more risky, um, but initiate uh, a connection with people outside of this building. Initiate a connection with people outside of this building. Previous generations were better at this. Invite someone to your house if you can risk it. Invite someone to your house for a meal. If that's uh, too big of a stretch for you, and I know for some of you it is, um, arrange to meet them somewhere for a cup of coffee. Go to the Red Bulb. Amber works there. She'll make you feel at home. And, you know, wherever the coffee shop is in your area, arrange to meet someone and just say, could we have a cup of coffee together? Could we just meet for lunch together? Arrange to get together outside of this building. Take a little bit of a step with that one. Here's a bigger stretch, but try this one. Join a home church. We have a program here at Heisey Hill called Home Church. And uh, we have a number of them that meet throughout the community, usually bi-weekly. Um, lots of different settings, different age groups, different groups of people. Uh, but we would love to plug you into a home church experience. And I'd love to talk to you uh, more about how you can be part of a group of people that sit down and just talk about the scriptures on a regular basis and share life uh, together. And here's the last one. It's pretty easy. Uh, decide to pray for people here at Heisey Hill. Decide to just get a list of people that you can pray for and pray for a different person every day. Make a list Sunday morning when you're in church. I'm going to pray for this person these seven days. Um, different person this week. Just pray for people here at Heisey Hill. As you do that, community begins to develop. I want to tell you one of my favorite stories to conclude. My favorite author is a man named Philip Gully. This is probably one of my most famous uh, favorite books in the whole world. It's called Front Porch Tales. And he tells the story in here that I read years ago, but I just think it just kind of sums up uh, what I believe about community and what I believe about people. It's about a man named Amos Welty. And maybe you're Amos Welty or you know some Amos Welties in your life uh, today. Here's his story. Uh, Philip Gully talks about uh, going to visit his parents uh, in the town where he grew up. He said, I went over to my folks' house one spring day to celebrate my nephew's first birthday. I took a walk and saw people out working in their yard, folks I hadn't seen for years. I saw Mr. Amos Welty walk down on the corner, raking up the winter deadfall uh, from his yard, getting the place ready for six months of flowers, starting with crocuses and ending with mums. His crocuses were already up. I, stood, uh, I stopped to look at them. He came over to talk to me, which made me very nervous since we had parted enemies 20 years before. Mr. Welty had been a sour man, a mean man, if the truth be told. Once he even threw a shovel at me for walking across his property. I upped the ante the next day by nailing him with a water balloon. <laughs> he was pulling weeds. I saw my opportunity. He stood over, bent over, and I caught him amidships. Pow. He called the town police officer on me, Charlie Morlock who put out an all-points bulletin on me. <laughs> Officer Morlock found me in my front yard. He stopped his cruiser, climbed out, and walked toward me with his hand on his gun. 
He drew near, reached out, laid his heavy hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eye and said, good shot. <laughs> Turns out he didn't like Amos Welty either. So I hadn't talked with Mr. Welty since that time, but it was on my mind when he walked toward me that spring day and held out his hand. He extended his hand to me and we shook, which disarmed me. Then we talked about crocuses and other harbingers of the spring. 20 years ago, he was corroded with anger. Now he was gentleness and outgoingness personified. He had changed. Amos Welty had metamorphosed. I talked with my dad about it. He said Mr. Welty had been nice ever since his mother had died. She was all that he had in this world, and then she died, and he was alone. It occurred to him that instead of throwing shovels at children, he should invite them to his porch for bubble gum and cookies. Now his yard has bare spots where grass once grew, but it seems a far more lovelier place than I ever remember. I read a book that said one's personality and character are pretty well formed by the age of five. By then, folks can tell whether someone will be sipping ripple in an alleyway or inventing a cure for cancer. At least that's what the author of this book said. Get it right in the first five years or start saving money for bail. I pitched the book, first because I didn't need the pressure. I have two children and a spastic colon, so I, didn't, I already don't sleep at night. But I also pitched it because I know too many Mr. Welties. Folks who changed horses midway across life's stream. They got tired of the nag of being grumpy and of hatred that they were riding and traded up to charity and grace and being nice. The prophet Isaiah talks about God making streams in the desert. He talks about how God puts things where they've never been before, like love where hate once reigned. Streams in the desert, Isaiah calls it. I'm here to tell you that those streams are real. For early one spring... When the crocuses bloomed, I waded into one. And his name was Amos Welty. And maybe you've known some Amos Welties, people that are just plain kind of miserable, and you're not sure if you can have a relationship with them. Maybe you've seen snatches of that in yourself. In the church, you get a do-over. You just get a do-over. And you can start again. This is a place to be brothers and sisters to each other. You're going to be reading a lot about that this week and thinking about how that can happen. But that's our dream for this community of faith here at Heisey Hill. And I pray that this week, as we learn what it means to be formed for God's family, as we learn to be brothers and sisters to each other, we'll find meaning and purpose galore and fulfillment beyond what we could ever uh, humanly expect. We invite you into that experience. Let me pray. Father, we thank you today uh, for this thing called the family of God, the church, that you invite us to be part of. It's not perfect because we're all part of it, and we all have our quirks and our foibles, things that we're struggling with, the inconsistencies that we wish weren't part of our uh, story. But we're learning, and we're growing. And so teach us what it means to extend the hand of friendship to each other, to be brothers and sisters to each other, to care for each other, to carry each other through difficult spots in our lives, to cheer each other on. And so may it be known that in this place there is love here. In this place there is acceptance here. And in this place there is a do-over here where you can start again and find a new way to live. 
Help us to live that new way, to exchange the old way that was perhaps a way that we kept people at arm's length and exchange it for an openness where we come into fellowship and community with each other. Bless us this week as we head out into the world to extend that offer of grace and friendship and community to other people that so desperately need it and maybe don't even know they do. Our world can be so lonely and it can be so hostile. Help us to be joy givers and encouragers. Thank you for this gathering today, for this community of faith that we can be part of here at Heise Hill. Bless us in the fellowship time to follow today. May we connect with each other. And in this week, may we serve you well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. There is coffee on out in the lobby for small talk and big talk too.